on it with the, the hustle emails and like especially the daily news we were writing them 10 minutes before we hit send and that was going to like a hundred thousand people oh and the reason the reason was because it wasn't work like we we're just like okay these people expect to just they just want to hear what we have to say let's just say it Welcome to Open, Honest, and Direct, a podcast sharing stories from powerful leaders on what it takes to unlock your team's potential and all their screw-ups along the way. Each episode will take a behind-the-scenes look at how to build a high-performing team from the leaders who built them. Today, we were lucky to have John Havel, the co-founder of The Hustle, a media and events company that curates business and tech news in a fun-to-read daily email aimed towards young professionals. The company is a little over four years old and now has over 30 employees, 1.3 million active subscribers with a 40 plus percent open rate, and it's profitable. Today, John dives into the importance of culture, hiring for culture, maintaining culture as you grow. And he shares about the difficult conversations that need to be had and his lessons learned by not having them soon enough. John, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, the Hustle now has what, 30 employees, 1.3 million active users, and over 40% open weight, which is pretty ridiculous. And you're operating at a profit. I, I, was, I mean, I was an early adopter. I, I read your emails, you know, four years ago, whenever they started. And how did you get here? And what was the journey along the way to the success of the hustle? Sure. We knew we all, we wanted it to be successful. We knew what we were trying to achieve. And it started so organically that, um, let's see, it's been around for a little bit over four years, maybe about four and a half years total. What it started with was just an event. We hosted a conference called HustleCon and was able to bring some money in the door. And, and uh, it was so organic that like, you know, we had a list of maybe 2000 emails. The way we sold tickets was just creating content about the speakers and about kind of our mission for the business. And over time we realized that, Hey, you know, people like reading what we're writing and you know, we're, we don't come from a media background or journalists or anything like that. So just kind of kept going harder in, in that direction and just writing basically Can for I pause ourselves. You for a second? Can I pause you? Yeah. So you said you had this like organic conference event. How did you get people there and what speakers did you have like that people would want to see? Like, how did you even, cause that in itself sounds daunting. Sam and I, he left a little bit earlier and we were at a company called Apartment List and I left a few months after him and, and he found this conference. So someone else had run it before, probably a year or two before in, in kind of a small room. And the idea was, oh, you know, people who want to be entrepreneurs who don't have a technical background, let's focus on that. They call themselves hustlers. It's called HustleCon. And the strategy for getting people there there are three different groups involved with the conference. One is the uh, the attendees. Two is the advertisers, are the sponsors, and three are the speakers themselves. So we just emailed people that we liked, founders of companies. Um, Nerd Wallet was one of our first ones that we got, and said, "Hey, we're gonna have." And this was all made up, but we're gonna have like 400 people here, 500 people here. Do you want to speak? And they say, "Yeah, sure. Okay, sounds good." Wait, wait, then, wait, wait. So you just you just made up a number. You said we're gonna, and you cold emailed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We picked a venue that had, I think, I think it's either 400 or 600 capacity and said, this is where it's going to be. This, we're going to fill it up and cold emailed them. Uh, we we tried a bunch of venue? 
Uh, we did. Yeah. We booked the venue. It was um, a pretty low cost. We did it at a JCC in San Francisco. Uh, they just had an auditorium there. So low cost. We had a target that we were shooting for. So booked the venue, cold emailed the speakers. We included stuff like uh, GIFs of us, like holding signs saying, hey, uh, would you, will you speak at HustleCon and customize it for various people? And they agreed to do it. Then we went to sponsors and we said, okay, well, we're going to have this many people attend. We're going to have these speakers come. We want you to be involved. We got enough sponsors on board to pay for the event. And then in order to sell the tickets, we said, you know, we did kind of weekly trip campaigns where here's a speaker that we're, we're coming. We, we, we would tell their story. So the best example is Pandora. It's like, let me tell you about this guy named Tim. He's a big musician. He was lived down in LA. He was working at this thing and that, and eventually started, you know, categorizing music, yada, yada, yada. He created Pandora and he's speaking at HustleCon. You should get a ticket and come listen to Tim speak. That's just how we did it. And yeah, once we had that first event going, then we knew, all right, well, there's an easy way to make some money if we need it. Then what's next? And what's next came to us. We just started writing more content. From there, it was, it's pretty surreal. I remember when we were still at 10,000 subscribers and trying to get to 30. We were trying to get to 50 or 100. And then finally we passed that. And it's like, okay, let's get to 200 and then 500. And unfortunately, eventually you get numb to it. Once we passed a million, it was exciting, but it wasn't as exciting as we thought it would be. And it just kind of keeps going from there. You went from events to, to emails and was it straight to daily emails or how did you decide which direction you guys were going to take the business? So Sam, give him credit where credit's due. He had the idea of the media business in that, you know, you create content, you sell advertising and, and you get, you make money that way. So um, we always knew that email was going to be our main channel because with email, you can, you control a direct relationship with the audience. Whereas if you build a business off of Facebook or Google, if they change the algorithm, you're pretty much screwed. So email is something that everyone uses. It hasn't changed in 30 years, but like everyone still checks that if, if there's one app, everyone checks multiple times a day, it's guaranteed to be email no matter what. So we just thought, okay, instead of building a website, let's build an email business. And we, we created content that we delivered through email. So these were blog posts um, about all sorts of different stuff. Did some experiments, kind of gaming the Kindle store. I became a best-selling romance author for, <laughs> it was actually a bad story, but just did a bunch of experiments. Wait, and... wait, you just, you just stopped there. You're a best-selling romance author. And why is that not in your bio? Oh boy. So, okay. It's a quick story. Uh, we met this guy who makes probably $50,000 a month creating Kindle books and selling Kindle books on like dating advice. And what he does is he creates, he creates an outline, writes an outline, hires a ghostwriter to just write the thing and then publishes it on the Kindle store, uses this trick where if you get a certain number of downloads or reads in a, a small niche category, it doesn't matter what the category is, then they'll say you're a bestseller or like number one in the category that will lead to more sales. So he just makes these books that maybe they help, maybe they don't, but people download them and he makes money off of them. So we're like, okay, is this guy for real? We decided to test it out. I ghost wrote, or I, I wrote in the loosest terms, a, a romance novel, made up an author, made up the name of the book, you know, made a cover that looks legit and then put it in, I think it was like an antiques category. Just, it didn't make any sense, but the competition was low. So I was able to get some downloads early on, became a best-selling author with it. Didn't end up selling any of them. So we, we took it down before it was just during the free period but it just showed that it was possible 
And we kind of gamed the system and shed a light onto everyone on LinkedIn that you see has best-selling author and all that stuff. Now we understand a little bit more about what that means, but that got me in a little bit of trouble. People in the romance community didn't enjoy hearing about that. They weren't, they weren't happy with you? Yeah, I didn't mean any disrespect, but unfortunately they took it personal, like a personal attack on their field and their niche. You know, that, that wasn't the intention, but it got us into trouble. What I found interesting about that and, and it just in, in reading your other emails, it's there's a different take that you guys have that seems to cut through the noise. And, and yes, there's the fun and there's the quirky and it's like your friends emailing you, but it's also like you're digging deeper into some of these things that we might not be thinking about. Is that intentional? For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that comes from our lack of experience uh, in the best way possible in the media world in that we weren't writing what other people wanted to read. Uh, we were writing what we wanted to read. And in that, our inspiration was just the conversations we were having with each other. You know, the early on employees, we're all interested in tech, we're all interested in business, we're all inter interested in entrepreneurship. So being able to have the discussions that we were having in the office, like though that was the inspiration. If we could just capture that interest, then I think hopefully other people would like it. So in doing that and in writing for ourselves, it just naturally came up where the question we were asking ourselves was, do we have an angle? Do we have a take on this? Um, we're not just kind of regurgitating what every other news source is writing. Like, do we have an opinion or can we make it interesting? Can we make this story interesting? If the answer is no, we just wouldn't write about it because none of us were interested in it. Why would we waste our time or anyone else's time? But going back to that original thing, so we, we were doing these blog posts. We started with one a week with one blog post, and then we started going up to three blog posts. And, and I think at the height of it, we were doing like 25 posts a week. And we could just, you know, we felt that everyone felt that the quality was just not really there because we were just forcing it. So then the question we asked ourselves was, what's an excuse to email people every single day and have them interested in opening it every single day? The answer we came to was the news. You know, the huge inspiration there was the skim. They really put that business on the map in terms of a curated email, editorialized news <laughs> type of thing. And so that's where that came from in that we can put our taste into our content and into the news. And we're also not forcing ourselves to just create content for the sake of getting eyeballs. So huh. it's just like one of the really interesting things that I heard from what you just shared and you see that in all the startups when you're putting together your go-to-market strategy, who's your target client, right? Who's the person that you are going after? And interestingly for you guys, it was yourselves. Right? It was like, if it's not interesting to us, then we shouldn't be writing it. And if this is something that we'd want to be getting every day, then why don't we send it to others every day? I think that's fascinating. I think a large part of our success, and I'm trying to coin the phrase, but we'll see if it takes on, is, is radical authenticity in that the mentality of writing for yourself or, or making something for yourself. The reason for that is, let's say you, you make something that you think other people would want, but maybe it's not authentic to you. Even if you're successful there, then your day-to-day -day work just turns into a job in that like you're just trying to write something that's not in line with your own personal interests. Whereas if you're able to really listen to yourself your company and your internal environment. Like early on with the, the hustle emails and like especially the daily news, we were writing them 10 minutes before we hit send. And that was going to like 100,000 people. Oh my God. And the reason, the reason was because it wasn't work. Like we were just like, okay, these people expect to just, they just want to hear what we have to say. Let's just say it. You know, whereas if, if you had in another environment, you'd have to go through a bunch of editors, you'd have to go through approval process, you have to do all this stuff. But like, it came naturally because it was the same as me writing you an email or something like that, like a personal email. Because and that's what it feels like. 
yeah, because that's kind of how we started. And it's one of those things where like, not everyone likes the hustle and I, that's totally fair. Not everyone likes anything, but if you do like it, then you'll really like it because it's so consistent. It's so true to us. And so our job wasn't to convince a hundred random strangers to start consuming this content. Our goal was to out of find a hundred people and out of those hundred people, identify 50 of them that are in line with us rather than us trying to align with them. And I think that was a huge part of our success, especially early on in that we weren't trying to do something we weren't, you know, that wasn't authentic to ourselves. Yeah, you're just, you were being who you were as a business and as people and not trying to do or be somebody else. That's really a powerful lesson to learn. You know, as you're listening, leader, you know, leaders listening to this, it's continue to be yourself. That's one of the best ways to do it. It's a tough one too, because if you look at any company or most company values, it's something like authenticity is usually high up there, but I just don't think people understand what that really means. Yeah. Just listening and really thinking about who you are first and foremost and not deviating from that. Because once you get off of that track, yeah, you're going to wake up two years later doing something that you hate doing, unfortunately. As you grew and presumably you and Sam stopped writing all of the emails, how did you keep that authenticity? How did you keep the quirky, the fun, that energy and that style going with these daily emails? It was, it was a combination of things. First off, you just got to find the right people. And it's not, you know, I'll, I'll single out Lindsay Quinn, who was our managing editor for a long time. She came on when it was me and this other guy, Kendall, writing the email. She was writing corporate blog posts for, uh, for a company and she emailed us and it was a great intro email and, you know, linked to some of her stuff, but it was so boring. It was just like B2B enterprise software, basically PR, like press releases. But then I like Googled around and she had a personal blog where she was writing about fictional stories from like, you know, the 1800s, like relating to a train robbery or something like that. It was just, it was so random. It's so weird. And like, this is, this is what we want. This not, not your, not your old writing, not your old PR type of content, but we want the stream of consciousness, who you are. And so when hiring, we just look for a culture fit. And that culture fit is just someone who's genuinely interested in creating content of some sort, who likes making jokes, who understands, who kind of just gets what we're going for. That's probably half of it. The other half is a lot of training. This isn't something that we really expected early on, but thinking about our brand and thinking about our culture and who we are and how do we get people kind of consistent? Well, we purposefully don't include names on each individual story because we want it to seem like it's coming from a unified front of, of the hustle, kind of the, the brand voice. Like one of the biggest things people think when thinking about the hustle is like, or writing for the hustle is I'm just going to drop an F-bomb here and there and just do crazy 90s references. And that's going to make it good because, oh, it's it's funny. We need to be funny. But in reality, the, the critical thought that goes into it, and again, thinking about, okay, what's the story here? What's your take on it? That's the important piece. And so we really focused our training and onboarding onto that, where it's like, let's all think the same way first and foremost, and then lead with the information first, make sure the information's good, and then think about adding in jokes. The example we use is you need to be the expert that then gets the joke. So you need to be the cool professor that like knows his stuff or her stuff, but then can also relate to the students in an effective way, because that comes from a position of authority and not just like, you know, someone on Comedy Central or something like that. What I, it sounds like is you made sure to hire for culture fit 
And then that wasn't enough once they were in, you, you had to really create a, a training onboarding process. And it sounds like even create some archetypes of who a writer should be and how a writer should look. Just the culture fit in general, like that, that's so, that's so important. It's, it's clear. How did you look for culture fit? Uh, honestly, the best way to do it is just go out for a drink somewhere. I think with Lindsay, what did it for me is, you know, we were at a bar. She made like a Jurassic Park reference that I that I absolutely loved. And I'm like, okay, this person, she gets it. And all of our other writers, same thing. It's like, do you connect with each other on a human level? Because at the end of the day, I don't think a company is best defined as the product or the product portfolio, but a company is the, the people. So mm. as long as we're able to be open and honest with each other, as long as we're able to work effectively and everyone has a similar type of work ethic, especially early on with the business, like that's really all we were looking for and being sure to paint the picture about where we're trying to go and make sure that they believed in it. You said it in such an interesting way, but it's something I talk about with leaders all the time, which is the two most important things you could do is provide clarity on where you're going and, you know, and just connecting in that and then context for why you're going there. Right. And that that's the vision and the purpose. And sounds like you did that pretty well. And it's no surprise then that you guys were able to achieve the success. My curiosity is what changed about you as a leader? You know, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say I'm a great manager and, and I'm, I don't have a lot of experience with managing, but as we started growing, I managed a little bit more or a lot more um, various aspects of the business, but I also stayed in the trenches, so to speak. So I was as involved as I possibly could be on the day-to-day -day level and working closely with people, not like telling them what to do and expecting them to do it, but like working with them to identify the problems and identify the opportunities biggest thing that really changed and the thing that I learned, especially from, let's say, six employees to 15 employees was the importance of, I hate repeating myself, but the importance of culture. We didn't know what we were doing on the accounting side, but thankfully we found someone who did. But on the day-to-day -day level, making sure that we had an idea about what we were trying to do and where we were trying to go and, and make sure everyone knew that and felt that and trying to limit the number of kind of political distractions, let's call it, on a day-to-day -day level. Like that's where I ended up spending most of my time eventually. It's just, it, unfortunately, uh, the, the larger you get, the more meetings you have. It just feels that way. And you can't necessarily get away from that. So half of my day on any given day was spent going for walks with someone, just kind of doing a, a weekly one-on-one -on -one or setting up a meeting, sitting through a meeting, trying to focus on the hiring, trying to really nail down who we were and what we were trying to do. And that's, you know, that's something that you really don't think about when you start a company, especially one that's growing. There's so many nuances and so many complexities that thankfully we have great employees and, and it made it a lot easier. But for me personally, I just, I didn't appreciate enough how important HR was and just culture in general. Yeah. It sounds like not HR in the traditional sense, but HR in the sense of like scheduling your leadership and making sure you had time to be with people, listen to them, talk to them, connect with them. Yeah, there's just not enough time in the day, unfortunately. So you got to start making decisions in terms of what would be best for the business. And as we grew, my time was best spent working with other people, not kind of being a contributor myself. So that's unfortunate because I, I think I'm a great contributor, but it's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah, it's a common transition. You have to go from a top performer to a leader of people. And those are different skill sets. So curious, what was your biggest fuck up along the way? I feel like a broken record, but it is my biggest takeaway from, from our experience. It's, uh, 
you know, you mentioned the clarity in the vision. The biggest fuck up we had was, you know, between myself, Sam, and kind of early employees, not having the difficult conversations about what we were trying to do. You could run a business for a number of reasons and what we were all kind of focused on. Eventually, it ended up being clear that we had different opinions. And once it gets to that point, then it's, it's tough to see eye to eye on not only like the big picture, but then also like the steps, you know, the stepping stones in order to get to the goal, which is like, what are we doing today? What should we do next month? You start seeing those strategies differently. And that led to a significant amount of conflict just internally. And that like some people just wanted to get filthy rich. Some people wanted to be able to hire a bunch of people. Some people wanted to be able to free up money and time to work on other stuff. And it just, you know, once you have that different opinions and different ideas going into it, then we started canceling each other out. Something I heard is you know, most companies go to business through indigestion and not starvation in that a lot of times it's avoidable problems that, you know, maybe just a, a simple conversation or like an in-depth conversation could fix. But when you're looking at one problem and you're coming from two different angles, not that productive, unfortunately. So it sounds like the takeaway here is continually check in on, you know, your purpose and your vision of the business because that might change over time and you want to make sure that you guys are all aligned. Oh yeah. You got to take a step back. And it's like, it's just people spending a large part of their week in the prime of their life cooped up in the same office building or like on video calls. Like, how's everyone doing? How's everyone feeling here? And we were so focused just making sure the business was good that when the business was good and we were profitable and growing and things for the most part were on autopilot, then we found ourselves with time to think and time to disagree. And unfortunately, that's when we kind of realized, oh, shoot, there are deeper things here that you know, we need to figure out. Like I said, it's so avoidable. And the way you avoid is, yes, just have real conversations with each other and really understand each other's motivations in life. What's really important? Is it important to have a business that makes $50 million a year? Or is it important to take your kids to school? You know, not just now, but like, you know, it'll change next year and like the year after as life goes on, like really what is important to you? And I need to know that for you. You need to know that for me and we need to respect and trust each other. We'll adapt and we'll figure it out. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. Such an important lesson to keep in mind is constantly having that conversation or continually having that conversation. I've been amazed and I've had some of my clients go to your 2X events, especially the 2X event that you had in Chicago where you have like eight or so female speakers who inspire, empower, tell a great story. And you've been doing this in cities around the world. And yet knowing that you were founded by you and Sam, another white male from Silicon Valley, what inspired this 2X speaking event series and, and kind of the movement in that direction? couple things there. First off, our first employee was someone that we worked with before and who, you know, was really instrumental in all of our success. Her name's Kara and she was in charge of our events. She is not a white male, is based in Silicon Valley, but her personal values are very much in line with diversity and inclusion, which are incredibly important and something that we weren't really addressing. And so we were thinking about other events we could try and other ways we can do it. And especially early on, we were just labeled and maybe we're still labeled as just like the bro-y, yeah, white male, uh, Silicon Valley techie voice, and which was weird because eventually a large part of our company was female. And even the writers of the email were female and the way the brand was structured and yes, who Sam and I are, it just, it was inherently built into it. We were trying to figure out a way where we could balance it out a little bit and really say, okay, well, we don't want to just be this dude's email 
type of thing. We don't want to just do these dude conferences because we happen to be guys. And so Kara came to us and said, you know, I'd love to do a women's conference. Here's how it's going to work. And 2X is just storytelling. Yeah, eight or nine people going out on stage and just being real. When we did it the first time in San Francisco, it was just so powerful, so different than anything else that we had done. As you'd expect, most of the audience was female, and we wanted to connect people in similar industries and shed light on similar experiences. Yeah, it just kind of took off from there, and thankfully, it was all well-received. It was spearheaded by Kara, who helped us balance out our brand and our, our offerings, so we weren't just kind of this one-trick pony. It's really something special when you get, there's a group of female founders or a group of female leaders to share their stories. And I thought what was even more inspiring was that you didn't just do it in Silicon Valley, is that you pushed the boundaries and started to go to other cities and started to have that conversation with others, which inevitably means there's different types and uh, looks and feel of, of the females that are showing up, which is just really, really neat. What's one thing you wished someone had told you before you started the hustle? One piece of advice. Get an accountant. <laughs> There's so much about business and starting a business, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that has nothing to do with the product and has nothing to do with the company. But letting people into the business and turning to the experts, I think is something that would have saved us a ton of time, would have saved us a ton of effort and a lot of stress because we didn't really know what we were doing. And no one knows everything, you know, that's natural. But being humble enough, I guess, to not only reach out to experts, but then also kind of trust them to tell you what's best for the business, um, rather than just trying to be headstrong and doing everything yourself and pretending like you have all the answers. Yeah. <laughs> Letting go and realizing you don't have all the answers is freaking tough. Oh, yeah. What are you most proud of? What's the one thing that you're most proud of? This is kind of a cop-out answer, but like I'm, I'm proud of the product. I always hear stories about my friends or friends of friends who read the hustle and get excited about it. I love hearing that. But the thing I'm most proud of, I, I think, is just you know having people take a chance on you and your, your vision and your company and, and spend their time. That's something that I didn't think about going into it, but it's so humbling to see everyone there and talk to everyone and, and realize that they are spending so much of their time, and again, in the prime of their life to work with you and work for you and work on kind of this shared thing. John, it's awesome. It's been a blast having you on. I loved hearing the stories. Really good inspiration for our listeners. So thank you for the time and thank you for coming on today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. And as always, you can drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers and have a great day.